Do you happen to know anyone who's a know-it-all? They're the self-proclaimed expert on everything, even on things they know absolutely nothing about. They're not much fun to be around, are they? But do you and I know the times we're tempted to be know-it-alls? We don't want input from others or their ideas. We can handle everything, thank you very much. We don't need other people. And we're really saying we don't need God. The wisdom in our scripture reading today reminds us, don't assume you know it all. When we're able to admit the obvious, which is that we don't know it all, we can ask for help from God and others and be open to learn to trust. Our scripture passage tells us to run to God, the only one who does know it all. When we do that, we can begin to listen and recognize God's voice. By knowing Jesus, we can trust that God loves us, and so we can begin to trust him and what he says to us. We can embark on the wonderful adventure of learning how to trust God from the bottom of our hearts. I've recently returned from a sabbatical leave, just in case you thought I'd left, and last weekend from a mission team to Guatemala. I find that I'm more open and intentional about listening for God's voice in everything I do and everywhere I go when I'm away from home, which is why I encourage everyone to experience at least once a short-term mission team. But I had an experience when I spent a week in Assisi in Italy this spring that taught me not only about the importance of listening, but also of trusting and obeying God. One afternoon, I was exploring the town. When I came across a door with a handwritten sign on it, in Italian, which I thought meant church, I opened the door very carefully and stepped into a beautiful Catholic chapel. The only people there were two nuns praying. I sat across from them and breathed in the silence, the beauty, and the peace of that place, looking at the exquisite crucifix in front of me. After a while, I heard this thought, actually an instruction, ask them to pray for you. I knew that it was God speaking to me through his Holy Spirit, but I said to myself and God, how am I going to do that? I don't know if they speak English. They're busy meditating. I can't interrupt them. I'll look silly. My stomach began churning. How was I going to obey and ask them to pray for me? I began to feel anxious. What if they got up and left and I missed my opportunity? I knew I needed to act, but I couldn't get myself to move. Then the silence was broken by a cock crowing. You're a little slow there. <laughs> you hear roosters often in Guatemala, but I hadn't heard a single one in Italy until that moment. Maybe I was imagining it, I thought. Then the thought occurred to me, oh, at least it won't crow three times. <laughs> okay, we're a little confused. Jesus said that, that Peter would deny him three times. The cock only crows once. I checked in all the gospels. But the rooster crowed again. And then for the third time, I thought, oh, come on, do the fourth. But it stopped. 
As I sat in the silence, this is what I heard Jesus say to me. You deny me every time you don't do what I'm asking you to do. You deny me when you don't trust me or trust that you're hearing my voice, that my Holy Spirit is directing you. I knew I needed to trust, but I had heard God and do what he was telling me to do, even though I felt silly. So I got up and walked over to the older nun. I found out that they were both German. They didn't speak English. I don't speak German. So I attempted to gesture to her that I wanted her to pray for me. I sat down in the pew right next to her, held her hand, and prayed silently. I have no idea if she understood my request or what she did. I trusted that God who had told me to do this would also tell her, presumably in German, <laughs> what he wanted her to pray for me. We sat there for a few minutes and then smiled at each other and I got up and left the chapel. I'm choosing to believe something happened because I did what God told me to do. I certainly had the gift of peace because of my eventual obedience. We don't much like the notion of obedience, do we? We don't even like the word. We expect children and dogs to be obedient, not us. I don't like to think of my fears and anxiety as disobedience, but I'm realizing that they are. When I'm not trusting God to empower me to do what he wants me to do, many of you know that's been one of my biggest challenges. How can I believe that I'll be able to do what God's inviting me to do? Well, on my own, I can't. But with the power of the Holy Spirit, I, we, can do anything that God has assigned for us to do. Remember the chorus, trust and obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Have you noticed that when you do risk and act on the guidance you think God is giving you, it increases your faith and trust in God and your ability to hear and obey him the next time? Learning to understand the ways God's communicating with you personally and to trust him will change your life. Will this happen overnight? No, it's a process, a pilgrimage, one step at a time. Did I jump from leaving England in 1980 to being here this morning on the verge of being an empty nester in one great leap? No. It's a journey responding to one invitation from God after another, one choice, one decision after another. Learning to trust takes practice. But even though I've experienced God's faithfulness many times, I can still come up with any number of reasons, excuses, why I can't obey God. Fear is my default excuse for not trusting or obeying God. I'm just wondering what may, might be at the top of your list of excuses, oh, I'm sorry, reasons. I'd like to tell you some stories from people in our own family of faith, so I'm going to start with Hat Crawford's story in her own words. Last January, Scott Dudley started a series of sermons called Break Free. He suggested we start thinking of something that we wanted to turn over to God so we wouldn't have to worry about it anymore. She said, I didn't have to think twice about this. 
I've had eight surgeries in the last six years, and God always has his arms around me and has pulled me through unbelievable times. At the end of the series, we wrote our desire on a piece of dissolvable paper, went forward for communion, and dropped our paper into the urn of water. Many of you will remember doing that. My desire, she says, was to have God be with me and watch over my health. I felt thankful to have this worry gone. She said, my daughter and I had planned a 17-day trip through China in May. They said it would be a very fast-paced trip. I've been having problems with my hip for years, and I didn't want to ruin the trip by hobbling along. So my first thought was, ah, a cortisone shot will do the trick. That'll take care of the pain. But my second thought was, no, if I do this, I won't be trusting God. What's more, I was taking over the driver's seat. So she discussed the pros and cons with her deacon and other trusted friends and made the decision to keep with her original plan to skip the shot. Several weeks later, she arrived in Beijing. She said, I felt like a young athlete that had arrived early to practice for the Olympics, not my actual 80 years. She says the things that would have been difficult before were not. She went up and down steps, up and down the wall of China, up and down steps into dark-lit caves. She said there were many steps, and most people counted them, but she just said, thank you, God, thank you, God, thank you, God. Then they sailed up the Yangtze River. There were pontoons loosely held together, and they had ropes to hold on to as they swayed in the dark. She thought of Jesus walking on the water. She said it was now it was my turn to walk over the river. They rode rickshaws, they took ski lifts, they walked and walked and walked. What a fantastic trip, she said, in my pain-free body. This was God's miracle. And then shortly after returning home, she had her hip replaced, and God continues to be with her. Last week, I received an email from Jennifer, who was in the 945 service. She wrote, it must be true now. Today, I purchased my plane ticket, so I'm committed to traveling to southern Sudan in January. It's hard to explain. Once the opportunity was made real, I've been on autopilot. I just knew it was something I am to do. I'm going with a team of five others, including Dean Wagner from this church. We'll fly to Nairobi, then in two weeks in a small village where a school to train teachers is being built. Their first classes will begin this fall. They ask, what skills can I bring? Well, unfortunately, my ability to install a ballcock in a toilet won't be needed. There's no running water. Her training in transportation planning won't be put to use either. There are no roads. She says, my family and friends are expressing fear or wondering if I'm afraid. And then she said this, I have never felt so unafraid in all my life. People are returning to this area where they fled some 20 years ago in the face of genocide. There's been very little done by the government to rebuild the area. No schools, hospitals, roads, or water. Then Pat LeBaron was my co-leader on the first singles mission trip to serve with the Arms of Jesus Children's Mission in Antigua, Guatemala back in 2001. She's been on an intensive journey of practicing trust in God, along with her husband, Scott Abbott. In September 2003, Pat started her MDiv degree at Fuller Seminary in Pasadena. 
in the following January, right before her second quarter began, and they had just announced their engagement, Pat was out walking her dog when she was hit by a car and suffered serious injury. She did graduate from Fuller in June 2007, and in the July, only 45 minutes after the removal ban had left, they were back in their home in Bellevue. She received a phone call saying her husband had a tumor. He's still battling non-Hodgkin's lymphoma today. Pat says, going on a short-term mission team pushes us out of our comfortable nests. The first time you go on a mission trip, it's easy to go with American thoughts. Here we come, the benevolent, wealthy, gracious Americanos to save the day. But then you deliver a mattress to a dirty, squalid, tin-roofed shack with maize stalks for walls. And once the people living there get over their shyness, you're met with bright eyes and big smiles. Would we be so gracious if we lived in those conditions? Is our faith as deep as our wealth? Do these people have things to teach us about hospitality and joy of the spirit? We bring material items, but what we receive in return is priceless. She says, perhaps we're the ones who need the help. Does our material prosperity cause spiritual blindness? Can a mission trip break open our hardened hearts? She came across this quote in her journal. Are you ready to follow Jesus? Or are you content to just worship him? And then Pat has this to say about their journey with cancer. One of the hard gifts that suffering gives us is a much deeper experience of God. When everything's going just great, it doesn't take much faith or depth of relationship to trust in God. We may give him a passing thought, if and when we remember to thank him for all the things going so well. But when things go horribly wrong, then God has our full attention. And it's then we finally turn to him to hold on. It's then we realize that we can and must trust him, even in the worst of times. And we realize how little we actually control in our lives. Suffering makes you feel very small and out of control, she says. It reveals what is the correct perception of the way things really are. God is our almighty creator. We are his creatures. When things are going smoothly, it's easy to forget who's in control of the world. She says, in suffering, I find that God cannot be commanded to answer our loud petitions. We pray and learn to wait for God's answer in God's time. Suffering makes us better listeners. God has our full attention. And that is a strange kind of blessing, one that is as much a mystery as anything else. No one in their right mind, she said, would ask for this kind of teaching from suffering. But when it happens, there are rich blessings in the midst of the pain. She says, one of the blessings comes from a deeper empathy for those I visit and pray with in the hospital. I may not know exactly where they are in the valley of suffering, but I'm familiar with the terrain. The terrible not knowing what will come next, or the minute by minute trusting in God to lead us through. Whether I speak of my own experience or not, they see it in my eyes. This is a gift from God. The 2008 Singles Mission Team returned from Guatemala last Sunday night. We're going to hear from two members of that team. Diane Lehman writes this, I want to tell my story of how I really came to know the Lord. 
I'm a farm girl born and raised in Ohio. As far back as I can remember, my parents took us to church every Sunday. At 21, I got married and moved to San Diego. And then in 94, we moved to Redmond because my husband got his dream job at Microsoft. I didn't think life could get any better. But then in December 2003, after 26 years of marriage, my husband decided he wanted a divorce. I was devastated. My life was falling apart, and I had no career to support myself. In February, she came home and found a note on the counter that he had left. Her son and daughter were grown, so she found herself lost with no one to turn to. She said, I enrolled in college, but was extremely depressed and very angry with God that he could let this happen to me. Six months later, her mother passed away, and her depression got worse. She no longer wanted to live. Somehow in all this mess, she says, I managed to graduate with an associate degree in accounting. But it wasn't long after, lose, uh, after working at her first job that she had to fly to Ohio for her father's funeral. Again, she questioned, where was God in all of this? She says, fortunately, I had a very good friend who encouraged me to take the divorce recovery workshop at First Press. Shortly after completing the workshop, she started to feel tiny glimpses of God in her life. But in the September, she was let go from her job. But she says, at least now I had a church family and friends to support me. I'd been attending the All Singles Fellowship and was praying to God for another job. She says, it was about this time when Rosalind handed me an application form and asked me to consider joining the Singles Mission Team. She says, I politely smiled, took the form home, and immediately put it in the trash. How could I possibly think of going to Guatemala when I didn't have a job? Three months later, I handed her another form. But this time she said to me, you know, Rosalind, I'm sure she had her hands on her hips. You know, Rosalind, if God wants me to go to Guatemala, then he needs to get me a job. The next day, on the Monday, she had a response to her resume. On the Tuesday, she had an interview. She had the second interview on Friday. By Friday afternoon, she had a job. On Sunday, Rosalind asked her, how's the job hunting going? She said, well, I guess I'm going to Guatemala. <laughs> her next hurdle was getting vacation time. So she worked very hard for three months, asked for the week in August to go on a mission trip. They said, no problem. Then God provided the money for the trip. Her father's estate had finally gone through probate and she got a check in the mail which covered the trip. She says, now after going to Guatemala, I can tell you it was a life-changing experience. I could feel God work through me every day. I actually had a moment when I heard him say to me, you would never have had this experience without the divorce. I now feel the love of God every day, she says, and I'm looking forward to returning to Guatemala soon. And now Ken Nelson, another member of the team, is going to share. Good morning. I'm not a third world person. In fact, for a long time, I've been very glad to have been born in this country. Church had been a big part of my growing up years, and even as a young father raising my family. But for a number of reasons, I hadn't had a church home for about 20 years until I was invited by a friend to First Press Bellevue only a year ago. 
A few months later, Rosalind also invited me on the singles mission to Guatemala. I was in the perfect place in my life that without a question I knew I had to go because I recognized I needed to do something for God and not myself. After arriving in Guatemala, I kept to myself the discomfort I felt about the third world experience and focused my heart on serving God. Upon seeing the conditions and the location where we were to build our first house, I continued to struggle with my discomfort. But after our team finished our first house, we experienced something unexpected. Almost to the second that we finished completing this house, it began to rain very, very heavily. We commented to each other that it seemed like God had held the rain off until we got that work done. My hands were extremely dirty and I wanted to wash them, so to wash them I reached out from the house we'd built and the rainwater was running off in a great quantity and I washed my hands and as I washed, finished washing my hands, I heard a voice inside me that said, these are the hands of God. I was a little startled by the words, but immediately I felt the calming flowing of energy flowing over my head and my shoulders and my spine. I'd heard this described as the anointing of the Holy Spirit. It was then I realized for the first time one of many reasons I had gone to Guatemala. And the other thing, and I want, I'm, I'm ready to go back, but moreover, it was the first time in my life that I truly, truly recognized how much I needed to, to do for God and that I did that. And that was the wonderful part of it, was that I really did give him my best, and not for myself, but for him. Thank you. I want you to notice that both Ken and Diane came to First Press because they were invited by friends. The research shows that a very high percentage of people come to church for the first time or back to church after 20 years because they were invited by someone that they know. Please be thinking about the people God wants you to invite to be part of this church family. So what do all of these stories we've shared have in common? They're all about people willing for God to lead them out of their comfort zone into a new adventure with Him. I'm the first to say you don't have to go abroad on a mission team to get out of your comfort zone and grow in your faith and trust, but you might need to. Many of you served yesterday in the Jubilee service day. Maybe you need to go downtown Seattle or walk across your street or your office or go across the narthex and speak to someone you don't know or volunteer in a hospital, in a school or in our church. What would stepping out of your comfort zone look like for you this week? What is one next step you can take in practicing trust? To try and help us remember, we're going to have the word trust. And the T is for talk to God. The R is for risk, rely on God. The U is for it's not about you. The S is for surrender, give up control in the idea that you know it all. T is talk to God, again and obey. The O is observe Jesus. 
Do what you see Jesus doing. B, believe. Be yourself. E, express your doubts and fears. It's okay to say, I'm very afraid to do this. The why is for yes. Say yes to God by your actions. Trust and obey. So I encourage you to consider going on a short-term mission team. We have lots going out throughout the year. Consider intentionally getting out of your comfort zone and allowing God to stretch you and use your gifts to build his kingdom and bless his world. Don't assume you know it all. Trust and follow the one who does into a life of adventure, service, freedom, and joy.